This episode of Killer Mediums has been brought to you by Zencaster. Zencaster is my podcast recording station of choice. Not only does it make it easy for me to reach out to guests and to coordinate interviews without a bunch of create account prompts, but it also has a bunch of cool production tools for the back end of recordings, including a filler word removal feature that automatically removes all the ums and the ahs that plague my interviews. It saved me so much time on the editing floor. Uh, Want to get started? Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code KILLERMEDIUMS with no space. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It is time to share your story. Foreigners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. All right. Hey, listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is extreme horror, and we are joined by guest Grant Womack. As a warning, this is an incredibly spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you want to dodge spoilers for any of today's topics, especially Saw, Hostel, Richard Lehman's The Cellar, or Jack Ketchum's Off Season, then you should turn back now. But with all of that said and out of the way, here we go. Let's get spooky. Grant, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm pretty good. We've been wrestling my internet for the last 10 minutes, so the fact that it's holding stable through the introduction at least makes me feel <laughs> moderately optimistic. <laughs> I like beginning all of these episodes by just kind of turning it over to you for a second, giving you a chance to uh, introduce yourself to our listeners, uh, talk to them about what your kind of niche is in the horror community. What are you all about? Okay, well, I'm a author. Obviously, I have four books out. I got started in Bizarro, sort of absurdist, weird fiction. And then earlier this year, I had two books come out, a crime thriller titled Black Gypsies, and then an extreme horror novella called God's Leftovers. So in terms of horror, dark fiction, people know me for splatterpunk and the extreme end of things. So, yeah, which is perfect for today's episode. Yeah, um, we, we've got the we've got the splatterpunk angle, or I guess, okay. So help me out here because this is something that I've seen kind of in the Twitter discourse a lot. The difference between splatterpunk and just straight extreme horror. For you, do you think there is a line? Like, do, do you define those two differently at all? I've seen these arguments all over the internet, just like you. I don't think there's a definitive answer. Personally, I do think what I've seen and read, splatterpunk may have a little bit more of uh, political undertones or social commentary. Uh, maybe even a little bit more elevated than extreme horror. Extreme horror may still have heart, but it may be a little bit more visceral, shock value, intense, bloody, gory. Yeah, I like that. Um, and I think the the things we're talking about today maybe play around with both of those lines too. Like um, 
Saul gets a little bit political where Hostel doesn't really try to do that. And then um, just like the pulpy nature of Richard Lehman's The Cellar, like we're, we kind of like dance around those lines a little bit. So I'm excited about this. I am excited to talk about this also because not just like trying to define the trope. This is a topic that gets so much conversation on Twitter uh, and on like all the, the typical social media sites with Instagram and everything else. There are a lot of questions here without clear cut answers beyond just defining it. Like what is the, how much do we need to separate art from artist? I see a lot of things where a book will come out or a movie will come out and people will say, oh, that's so disgusting. And that artist is disgusting. And that director is disgusting for coming up with this and the writer's disgusting or whatever else. Like how, how much should we actually tie the artist into these art projects? How much do we need to see them as separate entities? Uh, where do we need to draw the line with extremism to prove a point versus where does it kind of wander off into excessivism? I think we've got a lot of things like this that we get to grapple with today. So I'm excited about it because there's not any good, clear, definitive answers. Like we're not going to get to the end of the episode and we will have solved extreme horror or anything like that. But <laughs> I think a really fun conversation is to have. So let's kind of start with you. Um, why do you think having this subgenre that is so controversial sometimes why is it so important that we have this still for me it speaks to i'm big into art when i write i think of books as art i think sometimes art's meant to make you feel uncomfortable sometimes it's meant to kind of shock you or make you think and sometimes i feel like there's a need for subtle nuanced approaches with some books and some media in general but I feel like extreme horror sometimes that is the perfect vehicle to really push something or get you thinking about a certain idea I think a lot of people just think gore bloods being splashed but sometimes underneath the intensity there could be a really good moral message or there could be a really good social commentary when it's done the right way Okay, so I think that is my my next kind of question here then is you, you're ending this with when it's done the right way, implying <laughs> that there is some sort of a line or there is some sort of a wrong way to approach this. So in your mind with these extreme stories, what is your personal line? Where do where can extreme horror kind of lose itself or stray in the wrong direction for you? Because I know I've kind of got an answer to this, but I want to hear you. Yeah, so it's it's tough. I've been thinking about this. I think it's very subjective. I think it depends on the specific reader's uh, relationship with that book or that movie or that piece of media. I would never judge someone if they were listening to a piece of music by someone, I don't know, who did something appalling or crazy or they're watching a movie. But I would say something like Jeepers Creepers. I can't watch Jeepers Creepers anymore. I used to really enjoy it. My mom enjoyed it. I used to really enjoy the movie. But once I found out what the director did and what he was into, I felt like it was just too close to the material, like children, the school bus, the villain. I couldn't really like get that out of my head when I think of Jeepers Creepers, for example. Um, when it comes to fiction, that's tough. It's hard to say. I feel like I just hate when you open up a book and you could tell the writers 
not really trying to write a good story. They're just trying to shock you where they just do back to back. It's just rape, 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 uh, gore, 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 gore. And there's no real characterization. There's no real plot. It's not really driving the story forward. Uh, I feel like that's kind of cheap. Does that make sense? It does. Um, we're going to get to this. You're, you're kind of alluding to my feelings about the seller though. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I don't want to jump into that conversation quite yet. I want to, I want to build up to that a little bit more because I think that setting the stage with saw and with hostile and even with, uh, Jack Ketchum's off season, uh, I think that'll help me prove a point I'm going to try to make with the seller, but yeah, yeah. I think there is a point where you lose the artistic value and the shock value is just there as a trick. Um, if the shock value isn't driving the point of the artistry anymore, if it is just there as like functionally a jump scare, I guess. Jump scares don't really give you a lot of bang for your buck in a horror movie. Your heart rate spikes for three seconds and then for the most part, the, the it's done. The, the scary thing that jumped out of the closet is running off or we we talked about this in another episode but the fake jump scares in our bad horror tropes episode with Brandon Applegate uh he was lamenting the uh the cat jumping out of the pantry at you like it's the cheapest form of a scare because it does make you jump up in your seat for a second but as soon as that cat's off the screen and we're back to the actual story being told that was pointless <laughs> yeah yeah, I agree with you on that. So so I feel like extreme horror can sometimes muddle those lines. Um, it, it is doing something grotesque for the sake of being grotesque and story be damned, it's going to work in this grotesque scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very subjective, but I do, I do agree with you on the cat scare. Usually it's <laughs> pointless. I do know sometimes obviously you have to build tension and start to get people unsettled but there's other ways you could go about that so yeah um so i would like to go ahead and start diving into some of our some of our pieces that we're talking about directly here um we got two movies we got two books uh i think these do a really good job of showcasing kind of the range of extreme horror the different topics that extreme horror can dive into um, and I think they're important because they showcase, to me at least, and again, all of this is going to be so subjective, but to me at least, it showcases extreme horror done very well and extreme horror done very not well, in my opinion. But I would like to start with Saw, and I would like to start with this warning for, for you and for everybody else listening. This is, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. So when I am way too generous with my compliments here, I apologize. But Saw was, for me, the first horror movie that I snuck into in a movie theater. It was the first real horror movie experience that I had in the theater. My parents weren't like hyper uh, hyper conservatives or anything like that. They just didn't like horror movies, so they didn't bring me to them. Mm -hmm. So watching this movie in the theater, after hearing about everybody at Sundance, like vomiting and like passing out in the theater and all the stuff that we're hearing about with like Terrifier 2 right now, like it's yeah. the same reactions coming out of there and I just had to go and it was everything it got billed to be. It was disgusting. It was bloody. 
it was cringy at times and then the twist at the end just like socked me in the gut um i want to pitch it to you <laughs> give, give you give you a few minutes here before i go way off on my rants um what is your experience with saw how do you view it uh kind of in the timeline in the in the grand scheme of extreme horror i very similar to you i'm a huge fan of saw in the saw franchise so and i used to own it on dvd i've seen it multiple times so i may be a bit too generous as well so it means a lot to me i just think at the time it came out i feel like cgi effects we're at a really good place where I've seen a lot of gory movies in the past, but it would be kind of funny or ridiculous. And it's definitely different than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Hills Have Eyes or other movies like that. I feel like it kind of elevated things in a sense where usually something like this may be more independent or you would have to find a foreign film to see something like that. But I feel like it brought extreme horror into the mainstream and kind of brought a greater awareness, but it's also so well done that the average viewer would be intrigued to watch it because there's such, such a good mystery element at the core of the plot. So I just think it's amazing, so. Yeah, I, I like that too. Uh, the fact that it 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 did start as an indie horror thing and it just had such great legs on it that it, it yeah. blew out of Sundance, got into major theaters, kept gaining steam, kept gaining steam. I think you hit on something there. Like there's this simplicity to it um, with it is like basically just this one room play being carried out and we do get cutaways and we go see the detectives running around the city too but the core of the story is this just one room mystery of what's going on here how do we get out it's an escape room before escape rooms even existed yeah Um, yeah and and just the puzzle elements of it are great but if this is the extreme horror episode i don't want to dive too much into puzzles uh, I'll, I'll try to save save that part of my brain for later. I want to focus on the kills here. So in the first saw, we've got three kills um, that really stand out to me. We've got the barbed wire room where somebody is doused in kerosene with some flames with a with a candle and he's got a no 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 I'm I'm mixing two yeah, you're meshing two of them together. I'm sorry. He is stuck in a barbed wire room and he just has to get through the room and out the door before the door closes, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so we, we've got the barbed wire room and then we've got the reverse bear trap, which is like the the poster child for the series moving forward. That is the trap that they hang their hat on. And then there's just the very simple, straightforward, the doctor is chained to the wall and has to cut his leg off. Yeah, yeah. I love how varied those three are. You go from reverse bear trap, which is this insane contraption that'll just snap and it's over. Very quick death, but also very gnarly and gruesome. You go from that to just taking a rusty blade and slowly working your way through like whatever your carnage fear is. Like somehow in three traps, they hit all, uh, they hit the whole gambit here. They really do. 
Yeah. Yeah. For you, what are the standout moments of this movie? Where does the extreme horror really work for you? I think everything you mentioned were obviously amazing kills. The barbed wire room, you see the guy. He, I don't know if he's completely nude, but he looks like he's just about nude. And it just seems like such a hellish path or escape. You know, it's timed. You have three, four minutes to get out, but you have to go through these uh, barbed wires. And then even the morality behind it where um, Jigsaw is trying to see if he truly wants to live the guy going through the barbed wire where he cut himself one day, but he has to cut himself to get through, get to life to live again. Uh, but he ends up killing himself. So I just really love that. Another kill though, the uh, detective's partner where he thinks he has jigsaw shot and done for, and then he ends up tripping over a trip wire and we have the guns hanging from above and he ends up killing himself. I just love that because you think Jigsaw is done. He's the one who's going to get revenge for his friend who you think is dying because his neck just got slit. Um, but he ends up getting taken out by himself. So, yeah, that's another big standout. I'm trying to think any other standout. There are just so many good moments. I feel like the way the story builds up, even to the doctor cutting his own foot off where he's a surgeon and obviously he knows how to go about it, but it's so crazy. And I don't know if ironic's the right word that he'd have to cut his own foot off, but he's done so much surgery over the years. It's just insane. That's something that I really like about Saw. And I think this does help like make that point we were making at the beginning of the episode with us too. The fact that all of the traps in Saw are connected to things from the characters past, it gives them this extra layer of meaning. Um, yes, it is gnarly to see a person sawing through their own leg, but knowing that they've done this time and time again before that too, just gives you this, this personal gut punch there too. And with the barbed wire, with the guy that had cut himself, having to cut himself over and over. It also helps me connect as a, as a viewer because I've got a lot of these personal experiences too. Um, like I've, I've been cut by things before. I know what that feels like. So as the guy's crawling through barbed wire, this isn't some big fictional thing that I'm imagining uh, like they kind of get into in the later Saw movies where somebody's having like acid poured down their throat. Yeah. Or happened to me before. I don't know what that feels like. I have no context for that. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I've been cut by a blade before, like on accident. I've been like, I, I've broken limbs before. Uh, so I know what a broken bone feels like. And I think Saw does a really cool job of giving us these big, grandiose, very extreme horror kills, but also packaging them in ways that are small scale enough to still be accessible, which is weird yeah. to try to wrap my head around both of those at once. Yeah, they do. You're definitely right. I mean, I would feel like this is a great example of extreme horror done the right way. Um, great characterization. You could definitely empathize with all the characters, even if they're fucked up or they've had some crazy past or they're doing something kind of greasy or grimy. 
Um, like you said, I mean, I've been cut before. I've burnt myself before, you know, all these different things. And even, even the idea of having to save yourself over someone else or put yourself before someone else, you know, I feel like everyone has these selfish moments and you could really relate to that where it's like, am I going to be the bigger person or the good person per se and let the other person live? Or am I going to go kill this person for the good of my own family? You know, it's a hard question. And I feel like that really draws people in. Yeah, I feel like this is also a really good point now to transition over to hostile, because this is one of my big, I I shouldn't oversell it. it. It's not a big grievance that I have with Hostel, but this is just kind of the thing that keeps Hostel a rung below the Saw franchise for me, I guess, Um, is in Hostel, we don't quite have the same connection to the characters that we do in Saw. Um, I I feel like in, in Hostel, when we've got all of these teenagers being hacked up and butchered up, it's a lot harder for me to connect with them. The extreme torture that's happening to them isn't super connected to something in their past it it just feels a little bit more disjointed but um before we dive too deep down that rabbit hole could you kind of set the stage for us with eli roth's hostel uh what is about yeah i love now precursor um i love hostel even more than i love saw so (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I'm very biased here and very generous with this one. So Saw, no, sorry, Hostel. Hostel, we have a group of young men. They seem like college students. They go backpacking to Amsterdam and they're staying in a hostel and they're just being hedonistic. They're trying to get laid. They're getting drunk and uh, they get word of a location that has the most beautiful women who will just have sex with Americans just because they're Americans and shit really goes left. So, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that is part of my, my struggle with this movie is that the, the characters are, as American as possible. <laughs> yeah. They, they yeah. are the stereotype college kids. And like from about 10 minutes in the movie, I'm actively cheering for them to die. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, somebody show up with a blade. Let's just let's start getting these people. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many people from college that I despise that I see in these characters again. I'm just like, oh, okay then. <laughs> But maybe that maybe there's the fun in that too, right? Like in Saw, you've got these big stakes because I want most of the characters to survive. And in Hostel, I don't have to worry about that connection. It's just like, okay, smile, grab the popcorn, and they're all going to go down hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely, yeah, I definitely see what you're saying because they're not these great people. They don't have family. They're just kind of trying to fuck women and they're being rude, loud Americans. They get kicked out the club, you know? So it is, I definitely get what you're saying. I feel like I have a little bit more of a different relationship with the characters. Cause I used to be in the Navy for eight years. 
Okay. So I've lived in like Spain, I've lived in Korea, I've been overseas and I've seen, I've seen Americans act like this and it's so embarrassing, but it's real. They really act like this and they'll go to other countries and say, Hey, we're just trying to fuck these women. They're very uh, exotic and different. I'm American. So you do kind of hate them, but I do think there is a certain uh, realistic aspect to it, which really appeals to me because I know a million of these people. And even there's been moments when I was younger where I would be overseas and I wanted to sleep with different types of women. Um, Maybe not as like crazy as they wanted to go, but you know, new unknown land and conquest. So a little different perspective, but I do love how there is a certain, even though they're dumb and hedonistic, there is a certain realism there. So I have never left the States myself. So I, (laughs) we, we are beyond my ability to, uh, to talk to this, but I'll also throw in the same disclaimer here that uh, kind of Brennan LaFaro and I used for our Texas episode. I, I am not anti-American. I am not trying to say that <laughs> all of these, like all Americans go off and do this sort of stuff or to this extent. Yeah, or this yeah I guess I should say that too. I'm not anti-American. <laughs> I've served in the military. I did my time. So, um, but there are, I have seen Americans act like this and sometimes it's just like, calm down. Yeah, it's a stereotype for a reason. Like, yeah, (laughs) to go out and like do do the debauchery um, that 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 we've earned ourselves a reputation. So yeah, yeah, there is a reputation. So, but anyhow, back to the back to the torture porn. And (laughs) now that I've said that phrase, uh, I I want to I want to spin this back a little bit too. Saw and Hostel both get, depending on who you're asking, a good or a bad rap as being the godfathers of the torture porn movement uh, in horror cinema. And I've, I've heard people throw that phrase out lovingly. I've heard them throw it out like vehemently. Like they, they do not like these movies. There is, there is no artistic value to them. It's quote unquote, just torture porn. Do you feel like that's an accurate phrase here? Is that are these movies being mislabeled? Um, I I feel like both of these movies get a bad rep, and I feel like both of these movies are mislabeled. I do think there is torture porn movies where it's just kills, kills, and blood, blood, blood. But like we just talked about, Saw does have a certain heart to it. There is real characterization. There is uh, Jake Saw. He's trying to get people to really appreciate their lives and their livelihood. Uh, so I feel like that gets a bad rep. I do think it kind of helped. I did inspire t- a lot of torture porn, bad and good. Same thing with Hostel. I feel like you know, there's a good chunk of hostile that's there's no real killing going on whatsoever. It's building up to it. But I would argue hostile, um, you know, these college students are being hedonistic. They're exploiting and objectifying women and these foreign lands. But I feel like they end up being exploited 
towards the second half of the movie where we have these rich people who join this elite hunting club and they've had so much sex, they've indulged in everything where to the point they have to kill somebody or torture someone to get a thrill. And I think that's what elevates hostile where it sort of flips exploitation on its head. And you could kind of see if these college students had that much money and that much pleasure where that could lead. Um, and the other aspect of it, I like too, when we're, you know, like I said, I've been overseas a lot of times, there is a certain element of uh, fun and excitement, but there's also a dark underbelly and dark undercurrent to certain places, even when you're partying. Um, I used to party a lot in Spain, but sometimes you'd end up in a part that no one speaks English, no one's helping you, and you feel kind of alone and alienated. Um, and I don't really see that a lot in American film. So I feel like that's another part of my argument why hostile isn't torture porn. There's a lot more elements working here. Sure, I can see that. With the with the cautionary tale aspect of it, with the it, there is a like good story driving this thing. Um, it it's not so much of a character driven story, yeah. Um, as I think I'm kind of used to, but that there is a purpose to the things that are happening. You're right. Um, so yeah, I, I like that. But it it kind of opens the door for other films to just devolve into no story, just throw blood, blood and guts at the wall. Yeah. Yeah. And you just get, you I feel like you can't help that any genre, you know, there could be something really good or even like an action film, there's going to be a bunch of crappy action films that come after. So. Yeah. You, you can't, you can't help what your successes are going to do. You, you just got to do your thing. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so if if we're on hostile, let's let's have a little bit of fun of it, fun with this and not talk about the, like the big grand point of things for a second. Um, let's just let's let's talk about the meat of the movie. Yeah. Uh, best kill in hostile. Best kill in hostile. You take it first, and let me think for a second. What would you say? Okay. I'm I'm gonna go to the ankles being slit kill because it is just so gruesome to one see that happen um, with with the Achilles being burst and like how gnarly that is. It's another thing to then let them try to walk out of the room. And yeah, that was to just crazy. collapse the way that they did. I think it took what what was already uh, like grisly moment and grisly scene and stretching that out over an extra 30 seconds like i was squeamish like, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i'd i'd probably have to agree with you on that i really do love that kill i feel like that's the one everyone remembers um the asian girl with her eye hanging out of her face and yep she ends up killing herself, throwing herself off the uh, into the train tracks after she sees her mutilated reflection. I really love that. Um, it's very intense, very visceral, very in your face. Um, and also earlier on, when we first see the uh, 
I don't know what you want to call him, the failed surgeon, mm-hmm. doctor guy, uh, where he there's a random person and he's about to clip their toe, but it pulls away. And we go back to the hostel and the Asian girl is just clipping her toenails. <laughs> I really love that because it's kind of like, oh, we're not even getting blood yet, but you know something crazy is coming. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, that was a good good fake out with the toe clipping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So next up. I'm going to let you kind of take the reins here for a second. We've got two books that we're going to get into now, which I feel like books treat this genre very differently than movies do, um, kind of by necessity. Instead of just getting to show somebody's Achilles being severed, you've got to describe it. You've got to make them feel that instead of just showing them the image. Yeah. Um, so so I think they do a lot of cool things here, but what would you like to start with off season or the seller? Where are we going? Let's start with off season. Okay. So set the stage with us for off season. Why did you pick this book? Uh, and what, what is kind of happening in, in this novel? I feel like off seasons, when people talk about splatter punk or splatter punk classics and, things like that. Jack Ketchum's name always gets brought up. And I feel like Off Seasons deserves to be up there. Um, definitely cannibalism. Um, group of people go out to the woods, a rider, and uh, other people show up basically. And uh, little do they know there's a group of like incestual hillbilly cannibals in a cave that are about to rain down terror on their uh little getaway so you know i don't know if i did that justice or not but yeah yeah yeah. the stage is set Uh, (laughs) so then kind of circling back to that question that i was i was leading with a little bit so um in your mind and especially as a writer of extreme fiction like you can kind of spin into your works here if it makes it if it makes it easier to talk about how do you have to approach this differently than a movie does like what are things you have to consider when you're writing an extreme horror scene versus um when you're when you're maybe watching a movie like what's harder what's better about this what what are the differences here yeah i think the positive thing in terms of fiction and books versus movies you don't have a budget so a lot of times there may be a budget cut and a kill gets erased or the blood and effects you don't have to worry about that um, which is something I think about when I write but also when it comes to fiction obviously a person could just close the book but you have to go into detail with all of these kills and all these scenes um, off season, obviously there's, there's some grisly details in terms of the kills and the actual cannibalism. And it can make people sick, similar to movies, but you have to really go into detail and you have to figure out, I guess, where the line is and how deep you want to go into it. So even for example, in my book, God's Leftovers, there's rape, there's necrophilia um, and you have to 
describe every moment of it, even the person's pain and trauma and crying or pissing themselves or thinking about their family or screaming for help. It's a very intense process. It's not, for me, it's not necessarily easy writing extreme horror. There are some fun aspects where it's just straight up gore killing somebody, but, you know, describing rape is is hard because it's kind of like, am I going too far? Is this too much? Is this serving a story? Because I do look at reviews. A lot of people like God's Leftovers, but there is a small element of people that I knew putting this out would be repulsed, sickened, and disturbed. Um, and I do feel bad for these people, but I do feel like if you read the description of a book, you read the back, the blurbs all kind of tell you this is not for the faint of heart or the weak stomached people or, you know, um, definitely stay away from that if you feel like you can't handle it. I want to go ahead and introduce the seller here. I know we didn't dedicate like near enough time to off season, but maybe we can work off season in with the seller as we go into this, but yeah. this is just such a perfect segue for me. When I read the seller, I had one of those reactions where I got to the first scene with Roy and realized, Oh, this book is not going to be for me. Yeah. Um, the, the basic premise of the book is that there is this house called the beast house uh, with with some creatures inside of it that that have murdered stuff in the past, but beyond just the the terrifying setting, there is this woman and her child that are trying to escape from their husband that just got released from prison. And as they're trying to escape, you hear these allusions to the fact that Roy raped the little girl or molested the little girl, or yeah. it, it's kind yeah. of alluded to in the beginning. And as I read that, I'm going, okay, this is gross. That's awful. Yeah. But yeah. I can process this. It it doesn't zoom the camera in on it for a while. And I was I was still on board. And then it gets to a Roy point of view scene. And it not only does the pedophilic rape scene, like it zooms the camera all the way in on that scene, so to speak. Yeah, um, it, it gets very descriptive with the details. And for me, I felt like it wasn't in service to the story. Like it had already been established that this guy did the thing. It had been established in a much better, much more like think about it for a second kind of a way earlier in the book. And then he just dove into this rape scene and then he did it again later. And then he did it again, again later. And yeah. it's like this hammer coming down over and over and over again. Like he will yeah. not get up on the, on the child rape. <laughs> it's true. Um, it's true. So I know there was a line somewhere in there for me. I just don't know how to define it. Uh, I was fine with it the first time it popped up because it was for the story. I was not okay with it the second or the third or the fourth time it showed up. And I, like, personally, I don't know where it flipped for me. Like, I don't know what the difference was. So as somebody that has written this, uh, written in this genre before, is that something that you're aware of as an author writing these scenes? Like, do, do you have a personal line that you are trying not to cross? Or do you have a line that you think the readers have that you're trying not to cross? I guess what's more prominent for you, your line or where you think the reader's line is? 
honestly my line um because i feel like you have to be comfortable with what you're doing and what you're writing at the end of the day no matter what the genre or what the scene is now i can't i personally can't write child rape or child molestation scenes like if you paid me i feel like even if you pay me a million it'd be very hard for me to do i don't think i could really do it that's a personal line for me now can a child get killed yeah i'm fine with that um you know even in a gory fashion but the rape that's just too much for me to write now obviously i have read it there i do get what you're saying it does make my stomach churn reading that and i try to think about the writer's intentions to like where exactly what, what was Richard Lehman thinking? I'm not sure. I don't know if he thought that was good or if that's, you know, he was really trying to terrify people when it comes to pedophiles. Uh, maybe, I don't know. But Richard Lehman is a lot. Uh, I do like his work in general. His books, some are hit, some are missed. Some, they're all a lot. And obviously they all don't have pedophiles in it. I actually little side story my mom gave me my first Richard Lehman novel when I was in my teenage years uh, and it was a huge shock to me <laughs> because I was reading Stephen King and Stephen King has sex and violence I've read a lot of other writers I was reading Lovecraft I was reading different people um, Ramsey Campbell but none of these writers have you know or like Richard Lehman or Edward Lee or, you know, Rath James Wyatt or John Skip or somebody like that. So I remember reading that. It was the mummy book. I forgot the title, but yeah, someone gets kidnapped as a sex slave and gets raped repeatedly and men, women, and then the kills. I remember being so shocked as a teenager and being like, why did my mom give me this? Am I supposed to be reading this? But then also kind of broadened my horizons in a sense where it's kind of like, oh, you know, there are other things you could do in fiction. There's other places you can go that I never knew that you could go to until I read Richard Lehman, even though it was kind of shocking. I was like, why is my mom reading this? You know, um, but there's... A little bit of a thrill there is a certain taboo angle that I feel like people really enjoy when it comes to like I guess super intense extreme horror you know um but I don't really worry too much like about the readers it's kind of like I make sure I have enough blurbs and a description where it's kind of like hey this is not for everybody this isn't light material so I can see that. And clearly, like you were saying, it, it does work for some people. Like Richard Lehman is very successful as a writer. Yeah. Um, so yeah. even though I read this book and like, I think I feel safe saying this, he's not for me. He's not my cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I am one very specific writer or well, writer too, but I am one very specific reader and maybe I'm just not his target audience. Uh, maybe, maybe I should have read the blurb a little more carefully and known. What yeah, I was. maybe this wasn't the right because I'm trying to think. Maybe even like the traveling vampire show 
would have been a much better uh you know introduction book i i kind of like having been thrown into the deep end with it though because like you were saying about seeing the taboo and seeing how far out of the normal the normal day-to-day i guess that makes no sense but whatever go with it yeah. <laughs> uh, seeing how far outside the normal day-to-day we can go like i i now have a wider appreciation for what's out there now um i even in reading horror i read a lot of horror um i watch a lot of horror this broadened my scope um so i guess i'm appreciative for that even though <laughs> my taste um so what would what advice would you give somebody else listening to this episode uh maybe considering taking the plunge into extreme horror what do you have to steal yourself against or how should you like how open of a mind should you have going into this I don't know if that question makes any sense. No, that makes a lot of sense because it's it's a lot. Like you said, with the seller, you're going straight into the deep end. I do feel like there's lighter material. I do feel like you really need to read reviews so you could kind of get a good idea of how far this writer goes because there is a spectrum. I feel like there are which just sounds crazy. There are Richard Lehman books that are on the lighter end of extreme horror. And I feel like are more accessible. Same thing. Like Edward Lee has some even crazier material, Rath James White, but all these writers have lighter end of the spectrum as well. So that's why I'm kind of like, you need to really do your research. Same thing like John Skip um and then there's like a new wave of writers too who've read all these writers and they're coming up with more inventive and crazier shit when it comes to extreme horrors so you do have to kind of like you have to be open-minded for sure because you never know what you're gonna get i'm pretty seasoned but even there's times i'll read a short story and I'll be like, oh my God, like, I can't believe they did that, you know, or that they were willing to do that, you know? Um, so yeah, just be open-minded, do your research, uh, kind of get your feet wet and then go see what you're comfortable with. And then usually I feel like if you read a Richard Lehman and you like the book, you're probably gonna like a lot more other Richard Lehman, because every extreme horror author isn't for everybody. You know, I like a lot of the different people, but there are certain people who may not like Ed Lee, any of his stuff at all, because it may be too much for them. So. Sure. Um, I want to, I want to end our episodes this season with some recommendations, uh, movie recommendations, book recommendations. You mentioned the new wave uh, of authors kind of like picking up the torch where Layman and Lee left off and carrying it. Um, Layman's made his money. <laughs> we don't need to yeah. plug him anymore. Yeah. Uh, anybody, anybody working nowadays that you would recommend we go dive into and try if we liked Saw, if we liked Hostel, if we liked uh, Off Season? And there's a lot of different people. Um, 
I don't know how to say all their names either. There's a guy, Daniel Volpe, who's pretty new. He's really good. Uh, Aaron Bugard has been making waves. Um, Brian Boyer, uh, all really good writer. Shane McKenzie, some of his is uh, extreme horror. Um, yeah, that's what I could think of off the top of my head. I feel like I'm missing a crop of people. Oh, Lucas Magnum too. He's really good as well. So cool. And then of course you. Yeah, me, Grant Womack. Yeah. Pick <laughs> up God's leftovers. Um, work on a prequel and sequel to that too. So perfect. That was gonna be the next question. Was like, <laughs> is there anything else coming up that we should be on the lookout for? Anything you want to plug real quick? So prequel and sequel? Yeah, prequel and sequel, uh, official announcements. I do have a short story collection debut coming out next year called The Hum of the World and Other Short Stories. Um, It's more traditional horror, cosmic horror. There may be a couple extreme horror pieces, but this is more, much, much lighter than God's Leftovers and much more accessible. And then... uh, sequel to black gypsies and then i have a bunch of other projects i'm working on so be on the lookout cool will do well again i am so thankful that i had a chance to get you on as a guest this was a lot of fun um one more time uh we we just did the um future projects but one more time if our listeners want to connect with you more where can they find you what are your social medias all that all that jazz yeah, I'm on Twitter at Grant Mirage, um, Instagram, Grant Mirage. Uh, look up grantwomack.wordpress.com for my site. And then I have a newsletter called Literary Loud. So that's literaryloud.substack.com. Free weekly newsletter if you want to stay connected with updates. Cool. All right, listeners, please get on that. Um, But that just about wraps us up for this episode. To everybody listening, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Don't forget to like or subscribe or sever the limbs off your torso and scream at your streaming service of choice. Uh, And we'll see you next time. I'm William Sterling. This has been another episode of the Killer Mediums Podcast. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue, so if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Mm-hmm.